Let's turn to John chapter 21. And I am um, always grateful for these. I'm always grateful for these testimonies. Today, Chuck's testimony uh, really fits well with what we're going to be looking at in John chapter 21. So thank you, Chuck, particularly for yours. Thank you, those of you that gave testimony about the Vacation Bible School. I'm not, as a pastor, I'm not sure who is helped more by Vacation Bible School, the children or the adults and teens who participate. And I don't mean by that we're not helping the children. I just mean I was blessed. Uh, One particular person came to me and said, the Lord opened my eyes to the great need among youth and children, and I, I, I need to be doing more. And so pray, praise the Lord for that, and then the testimonies that were shared today. And I just want to remind us, we're, we're, we're sowing the gospel, we're investing in the next generation. We may, not always see the, we may not always see those results. And I know we keep saying that, but i got to share with you, um, this isn't exactly my testimony, but... Uh, I need to share with you Joe, the fellow that uh, Guillermo was talking about. He called me uh, last night. And um, one thing you should know about Joe is he doesn't usually call me. He calls all my other family members. He doesn't call me. But that's okay. I'm not, I'm not bitter. Not much. <laughs> but he called me. And he said, I want to talk to you. I, yeah, got to Fargo. Yeah, good. I'm, I'm looking for a church. He said, I went to church on Wednesday night. Which, I mean, if you're riding a motorcycle, why would you go to church on Wednesday? He's in Salt Lake City. He doesn't know anybody there. He said, I went to church Wednesday night, and I thought that was a little bit odd. He said, it's because I've become a Christian since I left. I mean, since I left Tuesday. Understand. <laughs> he's out there driving all those miles in front of him. He's thinking about his own life and recognizing that he grew up in a preacher's home. His, his dad is, is my personal friend. And he's heard a lot about the gospel, but the gospel is a personal thing. It's not your dad's a good Christian or your mom's a good Christian or you've got Christian friends. You've got to make a personal decision. And so he said there on the road between here and Salt Lake City, he decided that he was going to surrender to God. God was going to forgive him. He was going to become a Christian. Now, frankly, I've known him so long, I want to say, well, let's all cross our fingers. We can't have that attitude, though. We have to ask the Lord to help this young man grow. So he's asking me about a church. Uh, He mentioned you said it was a church in Fargo that you were pointing him to. So let's pray that he would be in church. I told him I'll reach out to him tomorrow, Monday, see how he did this weekend. Um, My point in sharing that testimony is I don't know how many of you invested in him. And when he left, I'll tell you what, our investment seemed to amount to this much. But God's at work in ways we don't always know or see. So we're just going to keep investing in people. And I hope you'll keep praying for me as well. And even if it doesn't seem like the investment we're making in children and each other is bearing fruit, we can trust that God is faithful. What does he tell us in uh, 1 Corinthians 15, 58? Be steadfast, unmovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord for as much as you know that your labor is not in vain in the Lord. So we want to always be abounding in that work. Here we are in John chapter 21. This is about a different topic. And the uh, famous verse in in this passage, of course, is verse 15. Uh, uh, so when they had died, Jesus said to Simon Peter, Simon, son of Jonas, lovest thou me more than these? But before we get there, I want to look at the rest of the, the uh, chapter leading up to that. Let's have a word of prayer and then we'll consider this text together. Father, thank you. Thank you for your great love for us that you never give up on us. That as, as your children, you chasten us, you chase after us. 
you make sure that we are constantly brought to the end of ourselves so that we must depend on you. And as we depend upon you, as we lean into your grace, as we come to you again broken and unable to accomplish your will, then you pour out again your power and your spirit to do the impossible. And I I lift up Joe to you. I lift up the children that came to our vacation Bible school. And I ask, Father, that you would continue to do work in their lives, even though they may not be here this Sunday, although many have uh, been coming. And I thank you for that. I pray that you continue to work in their lives. I pray, Lord, that you'd give us a vision for investing in the next generation of young people, the next generation of children. Lord, we love you. Open our eyes to the truth from this passage. And we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Now, one of the struggles that we have as Christians, and uh, Chuck references, is what do we do when we sin? I mean, we sin. We've fallen down, and we feel like such failures, and oftentimes there's sort of, there, there, oftentimes there's a history there of some failures, some littler failures that end up in a big failure, and now we feel like, boy, I'm just, I, I'm just done. I, I just can't do this anymore. Here in John chapter 21, we come to the last uh, historic record, the record from history that John writes for us. John's gospel tends to emphasize the the personal, uh, a more intimate portrait of Jesus and his disciples than the other gospels. And he includes a story for us that is not included in the other gospels. I'm not saying that because it's somehow made up or he just is adding this for effect. No, this is something that actually happened. Mark in his gospel and and, uh, 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 Matthew and Luke did not record this, but John records for us a very interesting event here. And uh, uh, if you follow along, let's read verses uh, 1 and 2 there. After these things, Jesus showed himself again to the disciples at the Sea of Tiberias, and on this wise showed he himself. They were together with Simon Peter and Thomas called Didymus and Nathanael of Cana and Galilee and the sons of Zebedee and two others of his disciples. Simon Peter saith unto them, I go a-fishing. Let's go fishing. Now, nothing wrong with fishing. And I do know that Jesus had told his disciples or told the ladies, the women who were witnesses of his resurrection to tell his disciples they would meet them in Galilee. But I don't think they're going fishing to meet Jesus. Think with me what might have happened in Peter's life that would cause him to say to some of the other disciples, hey, let's leave Jerusalem. Let's go fishing. Let's go back to fishing. What might have happened in Peter's life that would lead him to want to go fishing? Yeah, he's just denied Jesus, not once, not twice, three times. Three times someone said, hey, I, I, no, you, sure, surely you were with him. You were one of his disciples. No, I don't even know the man. And not once, not twice, three times he's done that. And I, it doesn't say this in the passage, but I can see where you fail And you just want to go back to doing what you know. What was Peter's profession? What was his work before he dropped his nets and followed Jesus? He was a fisherman. So let's go back to fishing. And so often when we sin and we have a failure, we just just really want to go back to what we know. The problem is what we know naturally as human beings is to walk in the flesh. What we know naturally as human beings is to respond the way we've responded since we were little kids. The the way we've always responded. Sometimes I think we become 
discouraged too by the impossibility of the task God's put in front of us. And maybe that's another reason Peter said, let's go fishing. Because he recognizes that Jesus has given them a task. Go ye into all the world and preach the gospel to who? Every creature. Now, I don't know about you, that seems like an impossible task. You know what? Jesus, that's a great idea, but not me. I'm going fishing. Maybe some of these other guys need to go out and do that. I, I, I can't. It's too big for me. And between his failure and between the impossibility of, of Jesus' command, I think that he decided, hey, I'm, I'm going to go fishing. But I want you to notice something about this story. They leave. These disciples go up to the Sea of Tiberias, also called the Sea of Galilee, and they go fishing. And who, according to the passage, if you know it, who comes looking for them? Let's look at verse 5. Um, well, yeah, verse 4. When the morning was now come, Jesus stood on the seashore, but the disciples knew not that it was Jesus. Then Jesus saith unto them, Jesus came looking for them. And I find great encouragement in this because there are some times that I feel like I'm just going to abandon God and I'm just going to go my own way because I, I can't do it anymore. The task is too big. I failed. Whatever the reason is, I'm, I'm just going to leave God behind. And guess what? If you're a child of God, he will not let you abandon him. Amen. Now, he'll chasten you. He'll spank you. He'll bring trials and tribulations to turn you back to him. But he doesn't abandon you. You can try to abandon him, but he doesn't abandon you. you, you can't, literally, you can't get away from God because he says, I will never leave you nor forsake you. So here's my encouragement to you. Don't try, okay? Don't, when, when you feel like you're a failure, when the task seems impossible, when what God's given you to do is just overwhelming, the answer is not, I'm just going to go back to what I don't know well. That's not the answer. And even if you try it, then Jesus is going to come looking for you because you're his child and because he's got something for you. God loves us far too much to let us abandon him and go fishing. Metaphorically speaking, go fishing. He's got something for us to do. Now, it's interesting that the disciples, initially, they don't recognize Jesus. Verse 4 tells us that they don't recognize him. Now, it doesn't have to be a miraculous thing. Maybe they were just too far from shore to see people's faces clearly. Maybe they all were myoptic and they didn't have glasses, you know, 2,000 years ago. I don't know why they didn't recognize him. It, perhaps it was they were providentially hindered. You remember the two men on the road to Emmaus didn't recognize Jesus initially either. But for whatever reason, they didn't recognize that it was Jesus. Now, think about the details of this story and the other similar stories in Luke chapter 5. We're not going to go there, but they have been fishing all night. And these are fishermen. Right? They, they know what they're doing. And in the entirety of the night that they've been fishing, knowing what they're doing, trying to catch fish, how many fish have they caught? Zero. That's right. Josh has got his hand up. Josh, I'm going to have another question for you. Keep your antennas up there. <laughs> they've caught zero fish. None. No fish. Now, this also has happened in Luke chapter 5, and I want you to see the parallel because I'm convinced this is how they recognize that this is Jesus. Jesus says, he's on the shore, they don't recognize it's Jesus, but he's on the shore, they're way out there in the boat, and Jesus gives them some fishing advice. Josh, you ready? 
What was Jesus' fishing advice? Yeah, throw the net on the other side of the boat. Now you're in a boat. Imagine this with me. You've been fishing on this side all night, not caught anything. What are the chances if there's no fish on this side of the boat that there's going to be fish on that side of the boat? Right? I mean, that doesn't even make sense. Humanly speaking, it doesn't even make sense. But here these guys say, okay, we'll throw it on the other side. I, I don't know why it doesn't say, but I can imagine them saying to each other, you know, let's just show this idiot how stupid he is, right? We'll throw it on the other side. And guess what? What happens when they throw, someone else, not Josh, that's, a, that's under the age of uh, 18 here. Uh, what happens when they throw the net on the other side? Yes, Hattie. There's all, these there's all these fish in the net. Suddenly, in fact, the Bible says there's so many fish, they can't even draw it into the boat. Verse 6, they cast therefore, and now they were not able to draw it, the net, for the multitude of fishes. And they're reminded that something similar has happened before. In Luke, they had fished all night, they hadn't caught anything. Jesus says, throw it on the other side. That time it took two boats to get the catch in. And all of a sudden they realize, wait a minute, this has happened to us before. Some moron on the shore tells us to throw it on the other side, and sure enough, there it is. It says that the disciple whom Jesus loved recognized that it was Jesus. Verse 7, therefore the disciple whom Jesus loved saith unto Peter, it is the Lord I think that's important that we see, he doesn't say it's Jesus, he says, it is the Lord. When did they start calling Jesus the Lord? After his resurrection, recognizing that this was no ordinary man or prophet. In fact, just a chapter before, chapter 20 and verse 28, Thomas, and you know the story, we don't have time to go down that rabbit trail, but Thomas, who wasn't there the first time, he's there the second time. Jesus says, come, put your fingers in my scars. Put your hand in my side. And Thomas falls down in chapter 20, verse 28, and says, my Lord and my God. That Lord, that term there is not, a, is not the type of term like master, you know, the person in charge. It means God. They recognize that Jesus is God. And there he is now. He's on the seashore. He's talking to them. They're just how many yards away from shore? Peter gets so excited that what does Peter do in this story? Another one of the children. What does Peter do in the story? He's so excited. Yes, Hudson. He jumps out of the boat to swim to shore. I mean, he's just impetuous like this. Jumps out of the boat to get to shore. Verse 7. Look at verse 9 with me. As soon then as they were come to land. We're going to get back to verse 8 and some more points there. But verse 9. As soon as they... As soon, verse 9, let me start again. As soon then as they were come to land, they saw a fire of coals there. A fire of coals. Now, I understand the way you can cook fish. You have this fire, it's burned down to coals, and you put the fish either on top or underneath, and you cook them this way. But could there be another reason why this is specifically called a fire of coals? Not just a fire, because, you know, Scripture could just say fire. It doesn't. It says this is a fire of coals. Any ideas why it says a fire of coals? Let's go back to chapter 18 with me. John chapter 18. And look at verse 18 with me. John chapter 18. 
and verse 18 is the only other time I know of in the Gospels where it talks about a fire of coals. John 18, 18, let me read it to you. And the disciples and the officers stood there who had made a fire of coals, for it was cold, and they warmed themselves, and Peter stood with him and warmed himself. And what's going to happen next? He's going to deny the Lord, isn't he? Right there around that fire of coals. I, I wish it was, personally, Scott Dean speaking here, I know God knows a lot more than I do, so just bear with me in my humanness here, but I wish it would be more explicit. It seems to me this is Jesus saying to Peter, I forgive you. Remember what happened back at the fire of coals? Here's another fire of coals. It's, it's all good. God forgives us. I think that's amazing. God forgives us. Now, if I'd only sinned against God once or twice, well, of course, I mean, he forgives me. But every day, don't you find yourself going back to God every day and saying, God, I, I blew this, I blew that, I didn't do this, I should have done that. And God never says, you know, I forgave you for that last week. He never does that to us, does he? Now, there are some people I know that say, well, I don't have to ask God for forgiveness very often. I, I always point them to 1 John chapter 1, verse 8. If we say that we have no sin, we deceive ourselves. If you don't think you need to ask God to forgive you regularly, the problem is not you're really good. The problem is you're, not, you're pretty blind to your own problems. That's what the truth is. God forgives us. But it goes beyond forgiveness. And when, we, and when we don't recognize, let me say this, it goes beyond forgiveness. When we don't recognize God's forgiveness as Christians, when we think that we have to bear, somehow bear our own sin, we've got to make up for our own sin, what are we tempted to do? What are we tempted to do when we think we have to make up for our own sin? I know that's a vague question, but let's sit there for a minute. Let me tell you this true, uh, people that have observed these things, uh, I've heard this from several sources, I should have written down the last time I heard it, but do you realize that most great preachers in the United States come from very broken homes? It's almost as, and there could be a couple ways to see this, but as I've heard testimonies, it's almost as if they're trying to make up for something. But here's what I want you to remember. We never have to make up for anything. There's nothing to do to get God, to cause God, to make God forgive us. His forgiveness is always free. And he always gives it to us. If I sin, the answer, let me, let me give you a sort of a silly example of what I'm trying to say here. Let's imagine that uh, I come every Sunday morning, but I don't usually come Sunday nights. But one week I really sin badly and I think to myself, you know what I need to do to make up for this? I need to go on Sunday night to church. Is that what God wants me to do? Well, yes, God wants me to come to church. Don't misunderstand. I'm not saying that. But does that make up for my sin somehow? You know, I sin really badly, so I'm going to show up on Saturday morning and I'm going to go door knocking with these other folks because, you know, I've got to make up for it somehow. Now, I want you to come and join us on Saturday morning. We can send you on some visits. Yep, we can line you up with a partner. They'll take you out and you can knock some doors. But that isn't what God wants you to do, to make up for your sin. You're freely forgiven. 
if you've said something cruel to your wife, or maybe you said something you know, harsh to your child, you don't need to make up for that with God. Now, you need to make, maybe make up with your wife. Maybe she likes flowers. Take her flowers, right? Maybe it's your child. Maybe take him out for ice cream. But with God, we never do that. God's forgiveness is always free. What has Peter done in this chapter to earn God's forgiveness? And the answer is nothing. Nothing. And you don't have to earn God's forgiveness either. You don't have to do something. Now, I say that on this side. Let me also say on this side, you should serve God. Don't misunderstand me. You should serve God, but you never serve God to make up for your sin. You don't serve God more when you're more sinful to make up for it. That's not how it works. You don't, you don't serve God so that you earn brownie points so that when you do sin, you can say, well, I sinned, Lord, but you remember last week I helped that guy across the street. That's not how this works. There's not only forgiveness, though. What does Jesus say in verse 12? And this is why this passage came to mind as we were coming to our uh, food and fellowship. Jesus saith unto them, come and dine. Hey, let's take some time and let's eat together. Now, notice what he doesn't say. He doesn't say, uh, Thomas and Nathaniel and, and you two sons of Zebedee, hey, let's go eat. Peter, you go clean the fish. Now, you could see why, why someone might say that, right? Uh, Peter, you're not welcome to be a part of this because you've denied me three times. You need, to, you need to make up for that first. But we never make up for it, do we? God's forgiveness is free. And not only does God forgive us, but he restores us to fellowship with him. In fact, verse 15 says, when they had dined, when a period of time has passed and they've had fellowship together. Fellowship requires spending time. But every time that they spend time with Jesus, every time that they spend time with Jesus, I'm convinced that they enjoy that time with Jesus. Now, again, it doesn't say that here in this passage, but if you go to 1 John chapter 2, no, 1 John chapter 1, 1 John chapter 1, it says, And these things write we unto you that your joy may be full. And what is he writing about? John is writing to these Christians who've not experienced the same um, fellowship with Jesus that he had. And he's saying, we touched him, we saw him, our eyes looked upon him. We had fellowship with him. And I'm writing to you about our fellowship with Jesus and telling you that you can have fellowship with Jesus, that your joy may be full. Are you, here's my question, are you enjoying your fellowship with Jesus? Is it something you delight in? Is it something you look forward to? Here's Peter. He's just denied Jesus three times at a critical moment when Jesus could have used someone to stand up for him and say, yeah, I know him, and this is not fair. This is not just what's happening. Jesus says, I don't know the guy. Not once, not twice, but three times. But Jesus freely forgives him and says, hey, come and dine. Let's spend some time together. You know, when you found that you've sinned, and I say found because sometimes it takes us a few days to you know, gets knocked up the head and realizes, oh, that was dumb. I should never have done that. And you go to Jesus and you say, Jesus, forgive me. And God does. God forgives you immediately. That's a great time to spend some time in his presence, fellowshipping with him. Get your Bible out. Take some time to pray. Thank him for his goodness. Think of all the ways he's protected you. 
this, this mention of leaving the towel on over bread, baking in the oven. I mean, that's God's protection. We can be thankful for those things. Take some time with the Lord. Because what Satan wants to do is he wants to use your sinfulness as a wedge between you and the Savior so that you don't think you can fellowship with God. So somehow you've got to earn back God's good graces. But I want you to see in this passage with with Peter, Peter doesn't have to earn back anything. He comes to shore. Jesus immediately accepts him. Yeah, there's a fire of coals there, just like there was several chapters earlier, several days earlier. But it's not because Jesus is trying to make Peter feel bad. Peter wants to realize he's forgiven. Peter, Jesus wants Peter to realize that Peter is forgiven. And then he says, come and dine. And it's not until after they've spent some time together that Jesus says in verse 15 to Peter, Jesus says to Peter in verse 15, Lovest thou me more than these? I have some notes on this that I'm going to save for another time. Let me skip ahead and say this. Forgiveness leads to fellowship, leads to service. If you don't feel forgiven, you're probably going to take one of two paths. You're going to either try to compensate for your sin, again, by somehow making up for it. And trust me, that's going to involve walking in the flesh, and that's not going to please God. Or you're going to feel like, well, I can't serve God because I've just done something really bad. And I just got to wait until God forgives me. Well, how long does it take God to forgive you? It's instantaneous. You don't need to wait a certain number of days before you can serve him. So Satan wants you, though, again, Satan's trying to drive that wedge in there between you and the Savior so you feel like you can't serve him. No, no. Accept God's forgiveness. Spend time fellowshipping. And then get back out there and serve him. Now, I want you to notice two things about this service. First of all, that God is going to provide the strength that we need to serve him. I talked about the impossibility of the task earlier. And I do think, again, this is my opinion, it's not here in this text, but my opinion is one of the reasons Peter's gone fishing is because he thinks, how am I going to preach the gospel to every creature? I can't do that. I'm going to go back to what I know. But I want you to see this. When they bring the the fish to shore, it says um, in uh, verse 6, they've cast the net on the other side. They cast, therefore, and now they were not able to draw it for the multitude of fishes. So they're not able to get the net into the boat because there's so many fish in the net, they can't get into the boat. Now skip down to verse 8. The other disciples came in a little ship, for they were not far from land, but as it were 200 cubits, dragging the net with fishes. Why are they dragging the net with fishes? Because they can't get into the boat. You see that? Okay, this this net is so full of fishes, they can't get into the boat. The best they can do is just get the boat moving in the right direction and drag that net behind them. But then look at verse 10. Jesus saith unto them, plural, unto them, bring of the fish which ye have now caught. Simon Peter went up and drew the net to land full of great fishes and 150 and three. How is it that Peter, they can't get the net into the boat. Not all five of them can get the net into the boat. But as soon as Jesus says to Peter, you go and drag, bring the fish in, Peter all by himself drags those fish up onto land. I'll tell you the difference because Jesus has told him to do it. And it's a reminder to us when Jesus says, hey, I need you to do this. He's going to give us the strength to do it. 
don't be overwhelmed by the impossibility of the task. Whatever it is that God's asked you to do, don't be overwhelmed. Say, God, okay, I see you've asked me to do this. I don't know how I'm going to do it. Sometimes I don't even know what the first step is, so I say, God, show me what the first step is so I can take that step. And then I take that step, and, and God's right there. I say, okay, God, what's step number two? And just step by step by step, you're going to accomplish God's will. So number one, service needs strength. It needs power. And your power, your strength for service is going to come when Jesus says, hey, I need you to do this, and you obey. The second thing your service is always going to need is, is it's going to need motivation. Lovest thou me more than these? And, G- and Peter says, you know that I love you. And then Jesus says, feed my lambs. I'm, I'm making sure. That's the first time he says, feed my lambs. Later he says, feed my sheep. What's going to motivate Peter to serve? His love for Jesus. Now there's a lot of things you can be motivated by. Again, maybe you're motivated by, you've got to make up for all the dumb things you've done in life. Don't let that be your motivation to serve Jesus. Say, well, you know, I've wasted so many years of my life. God is good. What's amazing is, and you remember the story of the, uh, the laborers in the vineyard? Matthew chapter 20. Some of them work all day long. And some of them only work an hour. And they all get paid the same. And it's fair, because if you worked all day, they got paid a whole day's wage. It's just that some of the guys didn't have to work all day to get a whole day's wage. God is a good God. Don't try to make up for pastime, opportunities you've missed. Serve God because you love Him. Because He's so, such a good God. Serve God out of your love for Him. Don't serve God because you're trying to outcompete your Christian brother or Christian sister. Don't serve God to get my attention. Don't serve God to get someone else's attention. Serve God because you love Him. And I'll tell you, frankly, just candidly, let me get this off my chest, it's easy for me to look at other pastors and say, well, you know, I want to do better than he, I want to make sure we have a bigger vacation Bible school than that church. Hey, I want to have more people. I want to have a bigger offering. If that's my motivation, I'm going to get let off track real quick. Competing with other people that God didn't ask me to compete with. I've got to stay focused on, I'm going to serve God because I love him. And I want you to serve God because you love him. Because he's a good God. Father, thank you for the great vacation Bible school we've had, and we did. You just blessed us in ways that I'm sure we haven't even yet realized. But many of us have taken some time to just thank you because you brought children, because children were saved, because you, you've changed us through serving at vacation Bible school. Thank you for calling us too and, and enabling us to serve here at Elmira Baptist Church. There are other churches, and Lord, you'll, you'll call some of us on to other locations in your good time, and we trust you for that. At this moment, we're so grateful that you've called us here to serve together, to put our shoulders to the harness with other Christians here at Elmira Baptist Church. Thank you, Lord, for Robert bringing him forward for salvation, for Nancy bringing her forward to join the membership of our church, for the testimony of Uh, of new faith in Jesus Christ that Joe shared with me last night. Thank you, Father, for what you're doing here at Elmira Baptist Church. We are overwhelmed by the task ahead of us. Our nation, our state, our county, our city is so wicked. Father, we sometimes 
I, I can't even comprehend how do we turn this ship around. But Father, we want to take the next step that you've called us to take. So put it in front of us. Give us faith. As Billy said, help us to fight with a big sword and a big shield. The sword being the sword of the Spirit, the Word of God, and the shield being our faith in a mighty God. And help us, push us, motivate us, enable us to do the impossible here in Elmira and in Vacaville, in our own homes. We ask, Lord, for miracles. And we pray these things. And I pray, Father, for those that are struggling to be forgiven. You forgive them. Your forgiveness is instantaneous. But for some reason, they're holding on to their, their guilt and not allowing, not accepting your free forgiveness. Would you give them confidence this afternoon that through the blood of Jesus Christ, you have forgiven them? So that they can serve, not compelled by guilt or trying to make up for, but so they can serve because they love you. And I ask these things in the name of your Son, Jesus Christ. Amen.